All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, man, uh, it feels like we've been in Hosea for a little while now, and uh, we're going to get uh, close on one of the uh, first sections of what's called Hosea's Oracle. So the book can really div- be divided up into three main sections. Uh, the first is chapters one through three, which deals really with the narrative portion of the book of Hosea. So this is the story of Hosea, Gomer, uh, her fall from his grace, and then his redemption of her. And then in verse, or, and then in chapters four through really right now into chapter 11, we have the first set of a teaching series that Hosea would have delivered to his people. And then the, the next few chapters that close out the book are the second uh, grouping of teachings that Hosea delivered to the people. So this is really going to be kind of a conclusion of what we've been studying uh, for the last few weeks, really since uh, chapter 4 of Hosea opened up. And as we close off this set of oracles, there's another shift in the metaphor, specifically the metaphors we've been reading for the last two chapters. So if you remember back with me, the first metaphor was Israel is compared to grapes in the wilderness in chapter 9, verse 9. Israel is compared as grapes in the wilderness, meaning that they are this people that God found and that he set his affections on, and he loved them. And he, they were precious to him, they were sweet to him, they were an enjoyment, a refreshment to God. And then he leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and he pours out and cares for them. He loves them well. And then the metaphor shifts, and we get Israel painted as a picture of the luxuriant vine. And the thing is that a grape, when you plant it and you establish it into a location, it grows and it becomes a vine. And so this vine then spreads out over the promised lands and the judges and the kings are established by God and they grow and they prosper in all that they do. And then the metaphor shifts again and Israel is compared to a stubborn calf, one that is meant and intended to plow the field, this field of ground that God has laid fertile before them. But instead of plowing the field, they set their work and their yoke to doing wickedness and sowing corruption. And so that is the third metaphor. And then here we have the fourth metaphor where Israel is now compared to a rebellious son. What's unique about those first three metaphors is God in the metaphor is a farmer. He's a, he's a farmer of grapes. He plants it into a vine and then he has to tend to his stubborn calf. But in this case, God is not compared as a farmer in relation to Israel, but rather as a father to his people. And Israel is the rebellious child of this loving and caring, good and gracious Father. And it's tempting to read this section, especially in light of the last few chapters that we've been in, and conclude that God has somehow changed his mind about what he's going to do with Israel. That somewhere between chapter 9 and chapter 11, God changed his mind. You know, he's thinking through it, and he's like, "Ah, I'm going to take back what I said earlier. I'm really going to shift it and do this instead. That's a bad way to understand this because God is immutable, meaning he does not change his mind ever. A better way to look at this and what we're going to see today is that this is not a changing of heart or a change of God towards Israel, but rather a development of the idea that God is going to punish Israel. There is a real punishment for sin, but God will one day in the future redeem them and call them back to himself and love them, and establish them as his people. So really, we get a sense here of the future redemption purpose that God has for his people. Again, this is not a change of ideas. There is a real punishment that they're going to face within the next 10 years of this oracle being delivered. But 
there is a future redemption beyond that, way beyond what the people can see, a future promise, if you will, of God's faithfulness. But the overall flow of just chapter 11, we can really break it down into three main sections, and this can be very confusing, so I hope you'll follow with me. The three sections are the past, the present, and the future. So the past is verses one through four, where it talks about Israel's past, their history with God. And then in verses five through seven, you get the picture of Israel's present situation, namely the judgment that they're about to face. And then in verses eight through 11, you get God's declaration of what's going to happen in the future to Israel, his redemptive purpose on the other side of their punishment. So, In verses 1 through 4, let's read together about Israel's past. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Here we have a picture, like we had in the last few chapters, of the past history of Israel, God's faithfulness to them, despite their constant rebellion. Again, we see here the picture of God as a father. In this case, it's relational. And as a matter of fact, in all the metaphors of Hosea, Hosea continues to circle back to a relationship that is couched in family. First, it is the picture of a loving marriage that Hosea has with Gomer, his adulterous wife. And then we play on that metaphor for a little while, and now we are at the metaphor of God being the loving father to his rebellious child. And in a few chapters, we're going to see God as the the lover, the lover of Israel who strays away and wanders away from him. But in any case, the metaphor that is most fitting to God and his relationship with his people is not as a farmer, is not as a master, but it's mostly as a father. That is the way that God is mostly revealing himself to his people. It's a relationship that's couched in intimacy and couched in his care and his love for them. And we know that this is not a new metaphor in Hosea. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, God specifically tells Moses to go get his people out of slavery to Egypt, and he gives him this specific reason. He says, command the people to leave, command Pharaoh to let my people go, for Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is described as a son to God. Way back in Exodus, before the giving of the law, before God sets his law before his people, he calls Israel his son, and he calls them out of slavery and into freedom. And this is how his relationship is always to be seen with his people. And as a matter of fact, this is the reason why in the 10th plague, God takes the firstborn children of all of the household of Egypt because they would not let his son go, and so he will not spare their firstborn either. This is the reason for his harshness to the Egyptians, is because they have kept his firstborn in slavery for 400 years at that point in time. And he says, that's unacceptable, that's my child who I'm calling to come and worship me. And then again in this section we see, when Israel was a child, I loved him. This is God pouring his affection on them. But then he continues and he says, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The call of God on Israel is very unique. It's effectual. It does what it's supposed to do. Meaning, when God calls the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, 
It didn't matter that they wanted to stay enslaved. And if you remember the story of Moses, the, the Israelites at first are very uh, rebellious against this idea. They're that stubborn calf that needs to be dragged along and told what to do. And really, it's Moses and Aaron and God who have this picture of Israel leaving, and everyone else wants to stay where they're fed, where they're cared for, where they're under Egyptian rule and reign. But God calls Israel out of Egypt, and they do leave Egypt because God makes a way for them to leave Egypt. And he clears a path, he clears a sea for them to get out of Egypt and to go and to worship him in the wilderness. But if you know your Bible, you know also that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, this exact phrase is quoted in reference to Jesus. See, when Herod killed all the firstborn of the Israelites under uh, the age of two years old, it, uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt because Joseph was revealed in a vision that he had to go to Egypt to escape this slaughter. And then eventually, when Herod dies, Jesus exits Egypt and travels back into Jerusalem. And Matthew says, this is to fulfill what was written by the prophet Hosea, that out of Israel, or out of Egypt, I called my son. And so the question we are left with as a hermeneutical principle, meaning how do we read and interpret scripture, is, is this what Hosea always meant to say when he was writing this passage of scripture? And this is important for us to understand because it matters how we read and how we interpret scripture. And there's this idea that somehow there was an on-the-ground meaning in Hosea's context for Israel being called out of Egypt and into a response to God as his son, and that somehow this meaning was then in a deeper sense revealed to be true of Jesus as well. That there were two interpretations or two possible understandings of this writing. This is a theological term which is called sensus planor, meaning the fuller sense or the deeper sense or the real meaning behind the meaning of a text of scripture. And I want you to know that although that sounds like a good way to interpret scripture, as soon as you open the door for multiple meanings of any text, you open the door for any text to mean anything, depending on what you desire it to mean. So we're not to understand this to have two different meanings, but rather we're to understand that what Matthew is really doing when he's quoting Hosea in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, when he quotes Hosea here, he's talking about Israel being a type of Jesus. Israel models in a pattern-like sense what Jesus is later to come do as the Messiah. And he's merely drawing a correlation that Jesus was God's firstborn son who was called out of Egypt and into the calling that God had for him. And Israel was also God's firstborn son, called out of Egypt and into the calling that he had for them. And it's a pattern and a picture of a type. We see typology all over scripture. It doesn't mean that Hosea is explicitly talking about Jesus in the New Testament. What it does mean is he is setting forth a pattern of understanding. And it's important for us to recognize these because one, they point to the fact that all scripture is really pointing to Jesus and talking about him. But also we know that God is not a God of confusion. When he wrote this passage in Hosea, the people were to receive it and understand it exactly as it was delivered to them. God is not a God of confusion. They didn't have to wait hundreds of years for Matthew to really tell them what was going on in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So, I hope that clears that up. Any passage of scripture has only one true and real and accurate interpretation. Now, passages can have multiple metaphorical applications, they can have multiple types that they point to in the future. Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a type of Christ. Adam 
is painted as a picture in contrast to Jesus, who's called the new Adam. But we're not to understand that everything that's referenced in the New Testament is always a one-to-one, new, deeper, more perfect revelation and understanding. So when you're reading your New Testament and they quote the Old Testament, don't be confused if that context wasn't something you understood in the past. The New Testament authors are inspired to use the meanings that they mean for their purposes. But moving on and back to the purpose of this passage, we are seeing that Israel, although they are the firstborn son, although they are called out of Egypt, and when we say called, they were called to a purpose, namely to go and worship God in the wilderness, if you remember back to that story, we see that the more they were called, the more they went away. That is a bad response to the call of God. That is a negative response. The more they, call, the more they were called by God, the more they went away. And not only do they go away from God, but they actually pursue after, as you'll read, the Baals. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Now, this is a picture that we have painted a bunch of times in Hosea so far, that the Israelites tried to worship God and worship these false deities as well, Baals, and they think they can get away with this. But God says, in fact, as you pursued the worship of Baal, you were an outright rejection of the worship of Yahweh, and that you were telling me who you really served and what you were really after. And what's interesting is that God calls Israel. He calls them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He delivers them from bondage. And then as soon as they're free to do whatever they want to do, they go back and submit themselves back into slavery and bondage, as is their nature. They are by nature those who love sin. You see, the Baals weren't calling out to them. Israel was in pursuit of the Baals. God calls Israel, and yet they turn away from him and run from him. And this picture is now painted of the faithful God and the rebellious child. And this is a picture that's very important for us to understand because according to the Mosaic law, a rebellious child could be stoned to death for rebellion against their parents. If you want a cross-reference for that, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, talk about that same punishment. That you could take a rebellious child, dra- child, drag him out into the city authorities, the elders, present your case before them, and then if that child is found guilty and the verdict is guilty, that child would be punished by being stoned to death, which is the same punishment for adultery under that same covenant. And so Israel is now, as adulterers and rebellious children, been, ver- been declared guilty by Hosea, not only in their faithlessness to God, who's their husband, but also in their rebellion to God, who is their father. And so this metaphor has been painted, and the verdict is guilty and guilty both times. There's no question that Israel is rebellious. And we see this contrasted even more sharply as you continue to read in verse 3, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Here it's painting a picture of God helping Israel to take their first steps as a nation. He's taking them up by their arms and helping them to walk, leading them along the way because they can't step right, and so he's going to show them how to do it, and he's going to walk with them and teach them his statutes and his law. And there are people who's been enslaved, and so he's going to reveal himself to them and love them tenderly and show them his law, show them his statutes, and he's going to charge the adults of that generation to teach their children those same things. And God is walking faithfully with Israel. But instead of their response being gratitude and obedience, their response, as we saw in verse 2, is to go away. And he continues then with this metaphor, and he actually shifts metaphors in verse 4. And now he's back to 
talking about being a farmer with a stubborn animal. And in verse 4, we see, I led them with the cords of kindness and with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. God is here again a farmer who's going to lead his stubborn mule by cords or by a rope. And you don't need much to understand that if a farmer needs to lead an animal by the rope, the animal's probably not going in the right direction to begin with. But he also was one who eased the yoke upon their jaws. You see, Israel was designed for a purpose, which was to carry a burden and to carry the mission of God out to the nations, to carry his word out to the nations. But they're not doing their job, and so God is going to ease the yoke upon them, and he's going to bless them and take it, take it easy on them because he loves them and he cares for them, and this is his posture towards them. And as he eases the yoke, they take that opportunity, that license, to go on in their sin. But he continues and he says that I bent down and I fed them. And if you remember, in the story of the wilderness, there is not one but two different occasions where God uniquely calls down food from heaven to sustain his people in a wilderness where nothing grows. The first can be found in Exodus 16, where he talks about calling down manna from heaven. And he said, not only is he going to do this one time, but he's going to do this every single day except on the Sabbath, where you're not to collect any manna. But this is going to be my constant reminder to you that although you're in a wilderness where you can't plant or grow anything, don't worry about it. I will provide. I will plant for you this bread from heaven, new every morning, because his mercies are new every morning, and his providence is new every morning. He's going to remind them of their dependence on him. But it's not long before you find Israel stubborn and upset with the fact that they only can eat manna. You see, at first they were upset that they had nothing to eat at all, and they saw that as a problem. And then as soon as God meets their needs, their standard shifts. And now they're unhappy with what God has provided, and they want him to provide something else. They want meals on demand and things that they can eat. And they, they go as far as to say, we'd rather be back in Egypt under slavery of the Egyptians because we think, God, that they were better rulers than you are. And God says, if you want, you want meat, I'll give you quail. I'll give you so much quail, in fact, that you won't be able to eat all of it. And then he sends a massive storm of quail in their midst, and they couldn't eat all of it. And in fact, that quail makes them sick, and many of them and their number die from that meat. But God faithfully provides exactly what they asked him to provide. And the Israelites are being fed by God, who bends down from his heavenly throne to feed his people by hand. This is not providential feeding. This is not them planting in the ground he already provided for them. New every morning, he bends down to feed his people and remembers his faithfulness to them and reminds them of their dependence on him. But we have this picture in the first four verses of Israel's past, namely their unfaithfulness and their rebellion against God. And we remember that this is exactly what we expect from this people because they follow in the sins of their father, their father namely being Adam, who God shows the same faithfulness to, who he shows the same compassion to, who he pours his same mercies upon, and who also rebels against him. You see, Adam was created by God in a perfect garden and given a perfect job and commanded to be ruler over all of creation. And then he's not only given that, but he's also given a perfect wife who God handcrafts for him. And they both rule together. 
And instead of looking at God and blessing him for all the things that he gives them, it's only a matter of time and one snake before they start doubting the goodness of God. And then they commit sins in two different natures. The first is the sin of omission, namely being that they don't do what God explicitly commands them to do, to not eat of the tree of the garden. And they don't listen to God, which is a sin. They ignore God and what he has said. But also they commit a sin of commission in what they do, which is that they do eat. Not only do they not trust God with his command, but they also go forth and sin and do the very thing that he says not to do. And Israel follows in this exact same pattern. They're called out of Egypt and into faithfulness with God. And they commit a sin of omission, meaning that they actually don't follow in that same faithfulness towards God. They don't do what they were called to do. They don't listen to God. They don't respond to his call. And secondly, they commit a sin of commission, namely that they go and pursue worship of false gods, Baal. And this pattern of sin was there in the beginning, and it's there in all of the children of Adam. All of the Israelites follow in this same sin pattern. Adam was a type of Israel, and Israel is following in the same sin as their forefather. And God is saying that it's not because of him that they're sinning, it's because it's actually in their nature to sin, And he draws this contrast by saying, look at how faithful I've been. Look at how good I've been to you. And it doesn't matter how many blessings I shower on you. It doesn't matter how many red seas I part. It doesn't matter how many times I bring manna down from heaven or walk in your mist as a fire and a cloud. You're still going to rebel against me. This is still in your nature to do so. And he's contrasting this very sharply with his faithfulness. And so then in verse 5 through 7, we're going to get the natural consequence for Israel's constant rebellion in the past, namely their present impending destruction at the hands of the Assyrian army. In verse 5, he says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. You see, God punishes Israel for refusing to turn from their sin and repent and believe on God. Even in the Old Testament, he made avenues of repentance and belief in him, and they still refuse to acknowledge their sin and confess their sin and be reunited with God. But he continues, and he says, the sword shall rage against their cities. Because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to repent, the sword shall rage against their cities. And the sword is going to do three things. It's going to rage against their cities. It's going to consume the bars of their gates. And it's going to devour them because of their own counsels. And he goes on to explain this and says that my people are bent on turning from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. You see, the people have this punishment coming their way, and it should be no surprise to them because they have a whole history of faithlessness towards God. And so it should be no shock to them that this oracle is being delivered to them at this point. And it shouldn't surprise us as readers, if we've read chronologically through the scriptures up until this point in time, it should not be a surprise to us of the punishment that's coming. The shock should be that it's taken so long to arrive at this point in time. Just like when you read the story of Adam in the Garden of Eden, your surprise shouldn't be that he gets cast out from the garden, but rather that he's alive at all after he sins against his creator. That should be the shock. And so God, in his mercy, is going to punish them Not with death and destruction, but he is actually going to keep for them a remnant. He doesn't destroy them eternally for their sin, but he destroys them temporally. He takes away their cities. He's going to take away their leaders. 
and he's going to take away their diviners, those who are the false prophets among their midst. And he punishes their leaders for listening to the false prophets. You'll see that at the end of verse 6. He will devour them because of their own counsels, namely being that they don't listen to the counsel that God gives them, who's Hosea, and the other prophets of his day who are faithful, but they listen instead to the prophets who say what they want them to say and who tell good prophecies for Israel and who perform witchcraft in divining things. You see, Saul seeks these same diviners when he's going to pursue a war against the Philistines. He seeks these same diviners to conquer David, his enemy. And so we know that these people were around and that the kings often sought them in the absence of Yahweh. And so it should be no surprise to us here that if the king is going to listen to these necromancers, these witches, then of course they're going to be destroyed for their faithlessness towards God because they're listening to their own false counsel. But in verse 7 is one of the more tragic things that we read in Scripture, which is that they are bent on turning away from me. That the actual inclination of Israel, despite God's faithfulness, despite his goodness towards them, is to turn away from him. They are bent in this direction. This is their natural heart posture. This is how they are. This is within their nature. And it doesn't matter how many times you reset them, this is what their bend is towards. This is where they're going to go. So he could give them a reset and put them in a new promised land and deliver them out of this bondage and set them back up with statutes and with kings and with prophets who are faithful. But their actual heart posture has not changed because their hearts have not changed. They are bent on turning from God. And if you want a clear picture of this as this is revealed throughout all of human history, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we're only going to look at one verse in Genesis right now. Genesis 6, verse 5. And we see that the people have always been exactly like this, and God has given them a reset up until this point in time. But in Genesis 6, 5, we read this, that the Lord looks out over the, all, all the earth, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieves him to his heart. The inclination of man's heart is to rebel against God. His only inclination always is towards wickedness and towards sin. This is the natural man that we find in our fallen state. And this is true even among the Israelites, God's chosen people, who he calls out of bondage. And he might set up a wilderness for them and he might dwell amongst them. That's, a, that's actually a big problem for them because they're still evil in their heart. In their own nature, they're still evil. And this is not to be understood, by the way, as a one-time mistake that Israel has made to turn away from God. This is not an error in judgment. This is not them falling. This is them going exactly after what they want to do, which is they go and follow their hearts. And their hearts are bent in this direction, and so they follow in this direction. And they flee from God, and they pursue evil instead. And this is a dark picture for Israel, because there seems to be no hope, because they can't change themselves, because they're bent in this direction. And no matter how many resets he gives them, they continue to prove that point. But then, 
we get verse 8, God and his prediction of their future promise. He says in verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, and I will not again destroy Ephraim. I want to pause there. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I give you up, O Israel? He's lamenting his own firstborn children, and he's saying, how could I give you up to destruction? But he tells us that he has no problem with cities like Adma and Zeboim and Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities who he's destroyed for the exact same sins that Israel is committing right now. So he says he destroys these cities, but he doesn't want to put Israel among the number of these cities. Israel has a unique place in God's heart. He says he doesn't want to destroy Ephraim. He doesn't want to destroy Israel. And Adma and Zeboim, you can read about them in Genesis in the early chapters. They are destroyed by divine judgment in the exact same way that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed for their sins. They're actually in that same plane where Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed by fire from heaven. But Israel is unique and set apart from these other peoples. So we're to understand that they have a unique place in God's heart. And it's not because they behave any differently. And it's not because they are any different or because they do any better but because God has uniquely set his affections on Israel that they are to be preserved. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is the picture again of the father whose compassion and his warmth bends towards his child and he loves his child despite the fact that they've never done anything for him. And then he says in verse 9, his final verdict, his ultimate verdict, is that he will not execute his burning anger. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Now remember I said that this is a future promise. And so here in verse 9, we get a picture of the fact that he will temporally in this moment destroy Ephraim. But he says he will not again in the future destroy them. They're going to be led away into captivity. In a few short years here, they're going to be enslaved to the Assyrians. Samaria will be no more. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Israel is pretty much off the face of the earth. They're a small remnant among a much larger superpower being the Roman Empire. But he says he will not again destroy them, meaning in the future, in eternity, he's not going to destroy his covenant people. And he promises others that he will keep a remnant of faithful Israelites for himself. And he says, I'm going to keep those who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And he's going to preserve a unique remnant of his people for all eternity. But at the beginning of verse 9, we have this interesting phrase, I will not execute my burning anger. And what I want you to know is that God has anger. He just doesn't execute it. God is a God of wrath. He has anger towards sin. He hates sin. And so he has anger. Here he says he's just not going to execute his burning anger, but his burning anger is there and it is present. Because there is sin that needs to be punished. But he's just not going to execute his anger on his people. 
And if you want to know why he doesn't execute his anger, if you continue to read in verse 9, he says, For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The Holy One, God, is in the midst of Israel, and he desires to be there. And in the future, he says, I will be in your midst, the Holy One. But I'm just not going to execute my burning anger. And you see, a huge problem for humanity is pretty much this, is that God is holy. To be holy is to be set apart, to be different, to be other. Typically today, we understand holy as righteous. And although that's a close phrase or close term, holy doesn't mean righteous, holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means completely set apart. God is completely different than us. And he's different than us in such a way that he can't be around sin because although you and I are okay with sin and we tolerate sin, and we even make excuses for the sin in our own life, that's not going to work with God because he's holy, he's totally other, he's totally different. This is what separates God from the God of any other religion. He's not just a man who struggles with sin, who's more powerful and therefore able to overcome sin. He's not Zeus, who has the same natural inclinations as any other man, but he's just more powerful than all the other mortals. God is holy. He is totally other. He is outside of us. And so he cannot be around sin because it's not within his nature to sin. He is holy. He is set apart. And then he says that he is the Holy One in your midst. And that's a problem because we just learned that the midst of Israel is pretty sinful. And the midst of you and I is pretty sinful. But God says he's the Holy One in our midst or in your midst. And that should leave you scratching your head. Not asking, oh, that's nice that God can be among our presence. You know, it's, it's really good. God's a really relational God. He loves me, so it makes sense that he wants to be around me. God is holy. And so it should scare us for a holy God to want to come and be in our presence. And if you want a picture of this, just read about the Israelites when they encounter God trying to reveal his presence towards them. They won't even go on the same mountain that God is on. And when he dwells in them and among them, they have several separations between the outside of the city of the people where they dwell and where God dwells in the Holy of Holies. And if someone wants to enter the Holy of Holies, they can once a year after purifying themselves for a week. And so God is holy, set apart, totally other. And the people tremble in his midst. And he says, if I am going to stay with you, which I intend to do, Israel, you have to follow all my commands. And he gives them his commandments and tells them to not eat certain foods and to intermingle with certain peoples and to do certain other activities because he is holy and he's set apart. And he can't dwell among sinners. And every time someone does commit a sin, they bring that person before God. And usually they die for their sin they get punished immediately for the sin that they commit because God is a holy God. And so for God to dwell in the midst of his people was a terrifying thing for the Israelites. They took that very seriously. And I fear that today we have really lost a sense of the holiness of God because of what we're taught among most people and in most churches is that God loves you, he wants a relationship with you, and he'll take you exactly as you are. And what we take that to mean and internalize, whether the intent is that or not, 
We take that to mean that just as I am, I can come to God and I can be as I am and I can stay as I am because God loves me as I am. And while it's true that God has set his affections upon us, that he has people that he loves, just like Israel being called out of Egypt and into a certain call, we can't stay the sinners and the slaves that we once were if we're to commune with God. His holiness is a serious thing, and if he wants to dwell in our presence, he can't change. He's immutable. We have to change, which is a problem, again, because we can't change ourselves. How are we supposed to change? How are we supposed to become not sinners? Because by our very nature, we are bent towards sin and we are inclined towards evil always. As Paul writes in the New Testament, there is no one who's righteous, no one, not one, no one who seeks after God. So this is a problem. And it's interesting because God says he will not execute his burning anger, but he's going to dwell in their midst. So how are we supposed to make sense of this? Because God has burning anger against sin, but he wants to dwell among the very people who commit those sins. And so there's a problem now, which is even that if God forgot our past sins up until this moment in time, it wouldn't take us more than 20 minutes before we disqualified ourselves again from his presence. And it doesn't matter how many resets he gives us, we will continue to struggle and to wrestle with sin. And we will continue to fall short because we are by nature's sinners. And we cannot change that about ourselves. This is humanity's biggest problem. And we find out that according to the author of Hebrews, that there can be no forgiveness of sins unless there is the shedding of blood. This is the requirement for the forgiveness of sins. This is what is required for a holy God to dwell amongst sinful people. They need to be washed clean of their sin because sin has left a stain upon them and he can't dwell among them because of their sin. And he wants to forgive that sin. He wants to dwell amongst those people, but there needs to be a price that is paid. There is no forgiveness unless there is the shedding of blood. But we know that this is going to work out for the people because he continues in verse 10. He says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars and his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like the birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So he's going to call them anyway, and he's going to dwell among them anyway. And they are left to wonder in what way is God going to be faithful towards them that he's going to make this reality that he's just predicted possible. Because as it currently stands, Israel has no solution for their problem. But God said, it doesn't matter if you understand the solution, I promise you that there will be a solution. And I promise you that I will call you out of your bondage to Egypt out of your bondage to Assyria and into, notice this, your homes, the thing he has prepared before them, the place they were always supposed to stay, the place that they were supposed to be made for, their homes is where he calls them to. And they're going to come out of their bondage to sin and into their homes as a permanent dwelling place. And we're left to wonder, how is that possible? How can a holy God be present amongst a sinful people? How is he not going to execute his burning anger? And we're left to wonder, but we're left to trust in the promise of God. And we're also left to ask the question, what's so special about Israel? That they get this unique treatment over and above the other cities who are guilty of those same sins. What's so special about this people? Well, what's special about Israel, to answer that question first, is that God has uniquely set 
his affections upon them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, if you will turn there with me, we get a beautiful picture of why God has set his affections on Israel. What makes them so special? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 is going to take us full circle here. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. You see, it's not because there was anything special in you, Israel. You weren't really the horse to bet on. You weren't really the nation that someone would have gone with if they were in their right state of mind looking at things as man sees them because you were at this moment in time when God set his affections on you in complete slavery and captivity to another dominant superpower, Egypt. You have nothing that's significant about you, Israel. But, verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. You see, he has his love for his people, And he keeps his promises and his words. And this is why Israel is in a special place because God has set his affections uniquely on them. And if you wonder why Israel, you have to to ask the question, well, where did this start? Where did this promise start? So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 15 and figure out where this promise first took place. Because he says he's upholding the promise that he made to their forefathers. So how far back do we have to go to find that one? Well, in Genesis 15, we get the promise to their first forefather, Abraham, who's called out of the land of pagan idol worship and into a revelation of God. And in Genesis 15, God is going to decide to make a covenant with Abram. This is before Abraham. This is before Isaac, the child. This is before Joseph and Egypt and Pharaoh and all those things. This is way back way back at the beginning of human history, as far as we have it. And God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is making a promise to Abraham while he's sleeping. And if you look before this, they actually set out a covenant. It's known as a Caesarean Treaty which is how they would make deals in the old world. And one of the things that they do is they have to take animals and they cut them in half and they lay them flayed open in like a walking path. And the reason they do this, and it seems weird to us, the reason they do this is because they're going to make the promise together and then both parties who enter into this agreement are going to walk down this path together 
And the statement they're making by saying the agreement and walking down the path is that if either of us don't hold up our end of the deal, let it so be done to us. Let us be flayed open. Let us be killed in this way. And so this is the stage that's set. And Abraham brings some animals and he cuts them open. He lays them out exactly like God says. But then Abraham falls asleep. And then God makes this promise to Abraham and he continues in verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, remember Abraham's asleep at this point, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates the land of the Kenites and the Kezanites and the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jezebites. God is making a promise with Abraham uniquely to keep this land for his people. But if you notice, Abraham doesn't walk through that path. There's two persons who walk through that path, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. God walks through that same path with himself. And although he makes the deal with Abraham, the, co- the contingency of the promise is not on Abraham and his faithfulness, it's on God and his own faithfulness to himself. And he walks down. And so then as Israel continues to be unfaithful, God is going to continue to remain, faith- remain faithful and continue to call these people to himself because it's not based on Abraham's faithfulness or the Israelites' faithfulness that this treaty is contingent but it's based on God and himself that this treaty is contingent. And if God is going to not hold up his end of the bargain, he's going to have to kill himself. And so God has to make a way for Abraham to actually realize these blessings, for him to really be a people that's established before the Lord. So when God makes the oath with himself, he promises these people that he's going to remain faithful to them. So they leave into Egypt and they stay there in slavery. And then God calls them out uniquely, different than any other people. He doesn't make this deal with anybody else. He makes it with Abram. And he calls this people to redemption. As Matthew Henry says, those whom God loves, he calls out of bondage and into sonship. And everyone hears this call. The Israelites hear this call. Pharaoh hears this call. All the Canaanites hear this call to repent and to change their ways. But only Israel is given time after time after time to answer this call. And the other nations have this same standard and they're killed for their lack of following. And Pharaoh is given a few opportunities to repent, but eventually he gets drowned in the sea. And all of these nations are not in the same place in redemptive history as Israel is because they are uniquely promised by God to Abram, by God with himself. And so we ask ourselves the question, how is it possible for Israel, the sinful nation, to enter into relationship with God ultimately? Remember, God makes the promise with himself. And eventually, one day, he sends his son, the only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lives a perfect life. He holds up Abraham's end of the bargain. And he does exactly what Abraham was always supposed to do, which was to remain faithful. And he follows God's law exactly. And he lives a perfect and sinless life. And he preaches repentance And he preaches belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes and he gets tried by a Roman authority. And the Pharisees who are claiming that he is a blasphemer claiming to be God, he gets tried before this council. And he gets convicted 
of a crime that he did not commit because he wasn't blaspheming, because he was God. And he gets convicted of this crime and he gets spit on and beaten and whipped and drug up a mountain. And he is crucified with common criminals on his right and on his left. And he is hung up to die. King of the Jews. And he hangs there on the cross and he dies and he bleeds out. And at that same moment, while that physical punishment is happening that we can all see, the sky turns dark. And it says that God turned his back on him and forsook him. Because God is doing to that man what he ought to do to each and every single one of us, which is to turn his back on us and to remove his favor from us, which is exactly what sin demands. But he does it to that man who stands in our place. And he atones for the sins of God's fallen people. And he walks with God through this path and upholds Abraham's end of the bargain. And because Abraham wasn't faithful, Abraham broke the contract. But God said that it was between him and himself that the contract should be upheld. And so when Abraham fails to uphold the contract, God flays out his own son open on a cross to pay for the sins of Abraham. And this is why God is able to withhold his wrath. He's not able to execute it because he's withholding it for one future day when he will execute his wrath. On Jesus, the lamb that was slain, the person who atones for our sins. You see, God can't just forget sin and get over it and move beyond it because he is holy. And so sin requires punishment and Jesus atones for the sins of the world and stands in our place exactly where we deserve to stand and it dies exactly how we deserve to die. But not only does he stay dead, on the third day, he gets up nice and early and he proclaims victory over the grave and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning even to this day. And he sends his disciples out and he says, go and tell everyone of this good news and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them all that I have taught you. Teach them to repent from their sins and to turn and to believe on Christ. And you get all these people in Acts who are hearing the same message and some respond and some don't. Everyone hears the call, but only some respond. And why is that? Well, if you turn with me to our last text for today, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see why that is. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 1. Because you see, everyone is in the same place before God. And God calls everyone to repentance. But not everyone responds to the call of God. Not everyone is faithful to repent. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we find out why. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're by nature this way. We're bent in this direction. This is true of our heart posture. We are like this. And why are we like this? Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
not sick, not struggling, not barely hanging on, dead, completely dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond, unable to turn, following the prince of the power of the air, sinning, actively, loving the sin, exactly like the rest of mankind. And then what is the difference maker between us and the rest of mankind? Those who respond to the call and those who don't. What's the difference between those two groups? Verse 4, but God. Not, but man, coming to his senses finally, turns and believes on God. Not man, contemplates for a long enough time and realizes God really has the better offer. But God acts, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved and raised up with him. And, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he raises us up, he makes us alive, and he seats us with Jesus in the heavenly places. The difference between those who don't believe and those who believe is found at the beginning of verse 4, but God. You see, God acts in a unique way to make alive those who were once dead and to give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond and to be sensitive towards the call. Because they are spiritually dead before this point, unable to respond to any stimulus that might come from an outside environment. In other places, they talk about as a spiritual blindness. And what's interesting about spiritual blindness, it doesn't matter how much light you shine in a room, the person doesn't have the necessary faculties to respond to that stimulus. Spiritual blindness. God is described as the light, and the word is the light, and the gospel is light shed into darkness. But a spiritually blind person can't tell the difference between the darkness and the light. They can't respond to the light. The scales need to come off their eyes. They need to be made to see. They need to be redeemed and bought and called and made alive. Because once they're made alive and given eyes to see and ears to hear, they can rightly respond how they always ought to have responded which is to be obedient and to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you repent and you believe, those are the ones who are going to be saved. But we have to ask the question, how can we repent? How can we believe if God did not act? It is God who moves sovereignly to cause us to respond. Not that we are not responsible for our response, but it is God who gives us the ability to respond. So when we walk in this Christian life and we see our conversion to faith, although we might have in the moment been aware of a choice to follow after God and to repent from sins, we ought to be aware of the fact that it was not us who decided different than other people. We were not smarter or wiser or have a better bet than others. God is unique and he acts sovereignly to bring us to faith, to make us alive, to make us aware of our sin and to call us to repentance in Christ. And we see in verse 10 of this, the last chapter of 11, Hosea, that they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion and his children shall come trembling from the West. They will come. When he calls, when he roars, they do come. They do respond. They come from all over, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Babylon, from Rome, from all their sins and captivities, they come to their home. Exactly what God had prepared for them ahead of time. When he roars, they come. All who are his come. 
and they live and they dwell perfectly in unity with God, which is what we all have to look forward to. That we have a house that he is preparing before us and a promised land and a redemption and a worship and intimacy with him that we couldn't imagine because he has called us uniquely to be part of this. And we ought to be thankful and never forget the fact that he has been gracious to us to call us to him. In intimacy and love, he calls us. And it's because of his great mercy that he does so. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word for us today. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you have shown to each and every one of us today who walk in step with you and who are indwelt with your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that you gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond to the truth that we have heard tonight. And I pray that we would never get over the purity and the beauty and the redemption that is painted in your gospel, that you died in our place and you give us the opportunity to live together with you. And God, I pray that if there were any among us who have not responded to that call, that you would make them alive with you, that you would give them the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to respond. And that we would respond and we would believe that you actually did die in our place because we really did deserve sin. And God, I thank you for the opportunity that you have given each and every one of us to know you and to respond to you and to walk in obedience with you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.